everybody, and welcome back to the Chiluminati Podcast, episode 132. As always, I am one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by one of the many different types. Oh, no, I can't say that. Hang on. I ooh, almost spoiled something. Didn't whoa, mean to. Whoa. Uh, let's how, about, go. how about this? 30, 132 divided by two? Nintendo 64, baby. You know what I'm saying? Love it. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. One of you is the N64 and the other you is the expansion pack to the N64. You, know you want to know what's even worse than that? What? 64 plus 64, 128. Oh, shit. You did. Oh, you you with your confidence in your your suave speech, you fooled me into wrong math. Yeah. So. Uh, so uh, that's on me. What is happening <laughs> right now? What? Dude, I'm all, the show. The, I'm all over the shop today. Don't worry about it. We're, we're, <laughs> we're doing fine. Guys, yeah. go pay us money at patreon.com slash Pod. It's the roughest one. If you're in the Christmas spirit, you love this show. You love your monsters and murderers and your strange uh, pie-based internet conspiracies. You want it every week. You want a bunch of free stuff that we can give you. Head over to patreon.com slash Pod. It's a great tight-knit community of weirdos yes. just like yourself who love to get free art as a result <laughs> of their patronage who love to get access to merch before everybody else for no additional cost. what else do they get they get mini sods they get posters it's a good situation and starting and yeah let me tell you something else that's the other thing what do i have in my pocket i'm afraid to answer that question to be quite honest with you i'll tell you what it is Chapstick. <laughs> because this month, not, no joking, no fooling, we're starting a new thing. We're going to watch the Mothman prophecies and we're going to do movie commentary about it. And if you don't, if you listen to this show, you already like the Mothman. So this is perfect marketing for us. It's called Synergy. We're going to nail it. <laughs> Patreon.com slash Chiluminati pod for us to laugh at Richard Gear for you on demand. Well, it's going to be great. It's going to be a movie a month called Chill Tracks. Uh, go check it out over at Patreon.com. Nobody's going to sue us. Nobody's going to know about it. Nobody's no, going to watch no. it. And if you're wondering, it, will we get these eventually out for free? Yeah, eventually they'll be out there for free, but it's going to be like a uh, every it's the same. It's after, the same you know, situation same with these minisodes. Exactly. You, everybody gets them. This isn't a pay to win scenario. Exactly. It's a, it's a pay to not wait. You can pay right. me and I'll say you won. <laughs> if you I mean, want to jump into my DMs cut. and just pay me money under the table, I'll send yeah. you the I'll send you the unlisted link. Hell I don't yeah. care. <laughs> or you can head to Patreon.com slash Pod and do it all above board. You Money's know getting exchanged either. You can way. support the arts instead of the artist. You Are you ready, boys, to support this upcoming topic here? I look, here's the, here's the thing. You're I want to support it. I <laughs> I don't want to advocate it. I don't want to say I like this. That this happened. I'm not happy about no, it. No, no, of course not. It Neither devastated me. It devastated me last time. It's going it's to be worse. Just how, just how tropely mistreated this person was. How just cartoonishly horrible their life was. And can, uh, we, get, can we get a full rendition of uh, Giggling Granny Nanny Doss? Like, there's no more words than that. Yeah, it's, it. it's a, it's a jam. It's like a, it's like a, the Grateful Dead, but like a, it's, it's like, like Cotton Eye like Joe. But yeah, for murder. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah for murder. It's another exactly. song. It's another song that we actually just like sped up really fast. Like it's, <laughs> it's like a, it's like a Napster sensation. <laughs> actually right. though, if you are in a bluegrass band and uh, you have some time on your hands, this Christmas break, uh, you know, giggling granny, nanny Doss, it writes itself. I mean, it really does. And today 
on the final part of Giggling Granny Nanny Doss, we will eventually learn why she's called uh, such a nickname. I'm going to guess it's uh, because she eventually grows up into a grandmother, is my guess. We'll find out. It's all <laughs> part of the story. So, if you do not remember, ladies and gentlemen, last time we saw dear old Nanny Doss was after a marriage that failed to live up to the fantasy that lived in her head, living with a horribly cruel and cold mother-in-law and the constant need of four very young children. Nanny finally snapped and made a decision. She would murder two of uh, uh, her middle two children by poisoning them in an effort to lessen the maternal load while finding more time to pour into her firstborn, Melvina. Whether intentional or accidental, however, after successfully poisoning her own children, Nanny found herself the center of her small town's little world. Being deemed death by food poisoning and her husband having been away for days sleeping with another woman, Nanny had the empathy of near everyone, including her once cold and hateful mother-in-law. Shortly after, her husband, her husband scooped up Melvina in the middle of the night and convinced, convinced that Nanny had killed his children and ran off in an effort to save his life and his child's. This only made the town double down on their view of unfaithful Charlie, while Nanny continued to be the center of their small world. Outside, Nanny played the part perfectly, but within, she was raging. And that's where we left her. She still had her infant daughter, Florine. Uh, Melvina was the only one that was taken away because Florine was sleeping in Nanny's arms the night he decided it was time to go. Say what you will about Charlie, but that man had an instinct that was dead on and he definitely saved his own life. A hundred percent. It wouldn't be long after Charlie left that Nanny and Mother Braggs would run out of the small amount of savings that they had and Nanny would have to work once once again within the local cotton mill for money to feed not only herself and Florine, but now her mother-in-law, who she got, had been saddled with as well. Saddled and, with is a very rough, is a, is a very, <laughs> yeah, maybe, you know, yeah, I don't know about out of the house. With. Get her out of yeah. the house. That <laughs> grandma's dead. Get her you out. Know, the only thing she's going to make it. No, no. Actually, if there's any old bird who's going to make it, it's going to be Nana. She's, she's fine. Does, do grandmothers, <laughs> do grandmothers, is there like a law like the Santa Claus with grandmothers? <laughs> like if you kill a grandmother, do you, you become, become a grandma? You yeah. become the grandma? Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't think if that clause holds true, Nanny does not stick to it. Okay. Well, I, you know, I thought maybe that's how she got the became name. the granny. Yeah, no. I don't know. Not, this is not, this is not her transformation. She like shaves uh, her whole face and then the beard comes back. <laughs> <laughs> Judge Reinhold's there and for some reason. you know that grandma beard is just stubbly and pointy. Dude, I, look, I braved many a rough and ready elderly face for some whoa whoa family elderly loving. not whoa. like not like not like outside of the family you know i'm just saying like you know we got a lot of old people in my family <laughs> i got you i yeah. i followed you don't they worry i didn't misinterpret they got you whiskers they do they do have whiskers well to nobody's surprise or nobody in town surprise after charlie left his wife and sickly mother mother bragg's health began to decline rapidly Bouts of stomach issues, bedridden sickness, and more. Knife wounds, dear, strangulation wounds. <laughs> no, no, no such thing. But don't worry, Nanny was there, taking care of her, cooking for her, and tending to her every need. And Blue Mountain saw once again the Nanny they'd all fallen in love with, who would help anyone in need, even her own mother-in-law, well after her good-for-nothing husband left them alone. And in the summer of 1927... Mother Braggs passed away from her illness without a single suspicion from anyone 
within town. Damn. Yeah. She just, got her. She got she she definitely got her. Now we don't have any evidence that she did it. However, she the, did it. Uh, However, she did, she it. did it is what you Mother mean. Mother Braggs was not actually ill prior to that. However, the rest of the town had bought Charlie and her lie that she was ill. And when she finally truly became ill, nobody raised a single eyebrow whatsoever. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought I she was she sickly as hell. No, she no, she was sickly, a.k.a. when Charlie was home and, and they wanted to go anywhere. Suddenly her sickness would come out. But when Charlie was at work, she was fine uh, looking over all of Nanny's work, checking, making sure she cleaned everything properly, critiquing her. Um, she wasn't truly actually like a sickly mother. She huh. lived for many, many. Remember, they were married for years and years and years. And Mother Braggs never really like suffered from any true illness. Fair enough. In one year after Mother Bragg's death in the summer of 1928, Charlie would return home. Florine and Nanny had lived in that house for the year alone. But for Nanny, that did not provide any peace. The home was still under Charlie's name and nothing within the home beyond her few belongings were truly hers. She lived in a sort of limbo for a year in a place that provided her peace, but no permanency, knowing eventually either she'll be kicked out or Charlie will sell it. And when Charlie did return, something Nanny had been planning on him doing for some time, he returned with not only Melvina, but a brand new woman and a little boy who would be moving into the house with him. Wait, what? Yeah. Charlie found another single mom while he was gone for a year and took her under her wing and brought him her back to move into the house that Nanny was staying at. Didn't you just get done telling me that he was smart for escaping? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he, but then, you know, he came back and he maybe was like, oh, yeah, she's going to need some more victims. So, hold on. Uh, what are you doing? What are you up to? <laughs> what? I thought I'm so confused. So he's like, you know what? It's been a year. Her murdering ways are done. She's got that out of her system. I'm headed back. That's insane. Did he get married to a like a like a ninja assassin? Well, he wasn't married to her yet. They were still within the legal marriage to each other. Did she together, have metal Nanny. bones and one red eye? Yes. Like, uh, and when, when Nanny opened the door, she simply muttered, "Target found." Yeah. Uh, yeah. No. Uh, she. They weren't married, and this was a son from a previous marriage for her. Um, and like I said, Nanny was kind of expecting it. Nanny had given him nothing, however, when he arrived home. No words, no, no acknowledgement. She simply silently smoked her cigarette, packed her bags, grabbed Melvina from Charlie, in which Charlie did not resist, and left. So she literally just quietly left him alone. She moved to the only place she had left, back home to the Hazel family farm with her parents and her siblings. You look baffled, Jesse. Absolutely. I cannot like he uh, he knew she was a murderer. Yes. Like deep down in his soul. He suspected suspected that she scared and he left. And I I think he thought that she would just chill while he was gone. I don't know why, but I think I I don't know either. It it does not make any sense to me. I can't. He would come back. I couldn't tell you why he would come back, but she left and he got the house. He like he moved in and Nanny simply went back to the family farm. So and she did not kill him ever. No, she did not. The fuck what? Yeah, he survived the whole time. He never he he was never killed. 
I know, I man. Things are gonna hate this. listen. It's only ooh, you hate it now. This it's be, it speaks the, to a like very very depressing mentality. I think. Yeah, I agree with you, and yeah. it's only gonna get more depressing, and we'll see. Unsurprisingly, when Nanny returned back to the ha- the farm. James expected Nanny to immediately get back to work on the farm as a useful set of hands, while her mother, Lou, was just excited to have the grandkids living with them. Nanny, however, went into town for a new job before getting a job at the cotton mills of Aniston. In reality, would once again shatter her illusions of fantasy. For a year, Nanny obsessed about getting Melvina back, getting her back into her life and raising her like she should be to give her and prepare her for the life that Nanny deserved but never got. But once Melvina had come back under Nanny's care and parental gaze, all of that obsession just seemed to fade away. While Nanny certainly still liked Melvina, maybe even loved Melvina, when it came to building a relationship with the now six-year-old girl, Nanny preferred to do other things, things much more focused on herself. With a built-in babysitter now at home, Nanny did what she loved to do, She surrounded herself with the people that fawned over her. And for Nanny, that meant working as often as she could within the cotton mills, where she once again found that her natural beauty and charismatic presence drew the attention of nearly every man working there, regardless of her past, her divorce, and her children. Everybody there knew that she like lost her kids under mysterious circumstances, and they were like, well, yes, they knew they knew she lost her kids because again, small town. But this is the twenties, and those kinds of deaths normally until they start yeah. racking up, they don't become suspicious. Especially since two of her kids survive. Yeah, that's sort of the context you sort of lose a lot of the time in these stories. Like people just be dying, like yes, all the very time. Much yeah. So, yeah, and we'll actually, yeah, we'll revisit that concept a little later in the episode. Uh, but Nanny wasn't about to make the same mistakes that she made prior with Charlie. And her parents certainly weren't going to get a say this time around in who she married. So she carefully vetted each and every suitor at the mill, not ready to simply accept the first decent offer thrown her way. And in the end, she declined every single one of them who who worked with her in the mill. Because this time, Nanny was convinced she would find her fantasy made real regardless of the cost. While she certainly had had picked up reading her favorite uh, romance magazines and novels over and over again to ease her emotional suffering, as she often did, what she wanted was a real man. And with nobody at the mill meeting or exceeding her set standards, Nanny once again dove back into the world of romance columns in the magazines, sending out letter after letter to men within the Lonely Hearts column of her favorite newspaper. (laughs) And that's where she would go. That was her favorite hunting ground. Is that, it was literally called the Lonely Hearts column. It was filled. It's like with, misconnections IRL. Like pretty much, like, no, yeah. Yeah, like it's it's the dating, and it's not just from their state or city. It's across the country. Like all these different suitors potentially out there. That is a racket. That is crazy. I want to. I want the like, like uh, you know, dating webs like Tinder dot com. Like I met my partner on Lonely Hearts <laughs> slash whatever. I don't know. There's no websites yeah. back then, but you know what I'm saying. That's literally what this was, though. It's that era's version of a dating site or an app or something. And of the many, many potential suitors from there, only one ever made it past the letters phase. A man by the name of Franklin Franklin Harrelson, better known simply as just Frank. Frank lived in Jacksonville, Alabama, and was described as having, quote, the wavy hair of Grant Withers and the dimpled chin of Clark Gable. 
that paint a wonderful image in your mind. Uh, those who are fans of old timey movie movie stars. I'm picturing that sexy heart from Adventure Time is what I'm picturing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this was a man, according to her, who looked made for the movie screen. And after Frank's first letter back, Nanny was thoroughly impressed. He lived alone, had a maturity, a maturity about him everyone else seemed to lack. And so in her letter back, she sent him a slice of spice cake, a photo of her, and a letter that wasn't quite poetry like he was writing, um, but was filled to the brim with dirty subtext. And that was enough for Frank. Upon reading that letter, getting that picture and piece of spice cake, the day after she had sent it, instead of replying, he simply got into his car and began to take a trip directly to Nanny. He was entirely smitten. And under 24 hours later of receiving that letter, he was knocking on the Hazel family front door to meet this wonderful woman who had wooed him with her language and photos. The following weeks, Frank lavished Nanny in gifts from chocolates, flowers, lace, all with Frank's poetry attached to every gift. Frank doted and swooned Nanny constantly, desperately vying for her attention and approval. Nanny accepted every gift, but not, not only happy, but ecstatic, because this was the very thing all of her stories spoke about. Frank was fitting the knight in shining armor mold almost too perfectly, and Nanny was buying it hook, line, and sinker. And after a mere two months of courtship, remember with her and Charlie, it was four months, uh, Frank proposed, and this time without the influence of her parents, Nanny ecstatically accepted. Frank had dreams, ambition, unlike Charlie, to move up in his career. He also wanted nothing more than to take Nanny and run away with her, far from her family, saving her from her horrible life, just as the books had been like. He had a new job at the Goodyear Textile Mill in Cedartown, Georgia, where he, Nanny, and her children would live in a small two-bedroom log cabin just outside of Cedartown after the two were wed. It's like a Fallout so, 76 location. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So they, they left Alabama and he truly was he truly had bought into the idea of trying to take her away and be her knight in shining armor. They were both of them were, as most young people are, in the throes of that lust phase, that that like infatuation phase. And they just went with it. Unfortunately, he just found the wrong woman to do that with. The whole town of Blue Mountain attended Nanny's wedding, wishing her well after such a horrible start to her young life. But this was it. Finally, she had what she wanted, and her and her new husband and family packed their bags and moved off to Georgia. And on that, and on the wedding night that they, or on the night that they moved in, after the kids went to bed, the newly wedded couple made love in front of their new fireplace, just like the many stories Nanny had read. What the fuck book? is this, Gaston? What the fuck? <laughs> That's, you have to understand. This is you really have to understand Nanny's mindset. When these when these things in her life are happening, because this is how she sees it. This is what she's looking for. But in her books or magazines or stories, this is usually where the story came to a conclusion. Nanny would fall asleep and everything would say the end. But unfortunately, Nanny would wake up and realize life just continues to go on. You don't simply end on that happy ending. For as long as she could muster, though. Nanny did her best to prolong those honeymoon phase moments of pure bliss. And for a while, she was actually able to capture that feeling over and over. But as time wore on and reality presented itself, 
this life was proving to be far from the romantic fantasy she believed it was going to be. While Nanny had her own fair share of secrets, Frank was also just a human being with his own troubles and secrets like any person had. And as their lives progressed, Nanny learned that Frank, too, leaned a bit heavily on the whiskey. Now, Nanny understood this because Nanny had been drinking quite a bit uh, in her past years. And when she noticed this, she wanted to do everything in her power to stop this marriage from falling into the same issues that her previous marriage had. When she noticed Frank began to slowly drink more and more, she tried to communicate, open Frank up to talk to her so that could be uh, so that she could at least have that between them. Communication. But all that did was close Frank off more and more, and he pushed her further away the harder she tried. All those warm, home-cooked meals would slowly go cold as Frank stayed out later and later after work each night. She did her best to manage those thoughts, though, knowing full well that Frank was a sociable man before she married him. But when she was alone, she found those dark moods would present themselves much more regularly. Still, she tried pushing them off. She had a home she thought right out of a storybook. She's able to raise her two daughters happily with the, without the overbearing presence of some authoritarian figure. And while her husband may not have been perfect, she found plenty to love in her current life. That blissful ignorance would fade one night, though, when Frank's friend came knocking on her door uh, to let her know Frank was in the drunk tank for starting a brawl and she needed to go pick him up. What Nanny hadn't known about Frank was that when he that he was known to be a qu- bit quick to anger and would immediately start brawling if he got a little too drunk. to anger. Okay. Yeah, Yeah. when he got drunk. And often back home, ended up in a cell for the night after starting some sort of altercation. And for Nanny, this ended up breaking her. There was no middle ground for Nanny in her mindset. Either her life was going to be perfect, or everything was going to be terrible. And this was another step toward the terrible. Initially, she tried to help Frank off the booze slowly. But, what end, but that ended when he disappeared for a three-day-long bender. Nanny then attempted the opposite approach. If weaning him off wasn't going to work, maybe going along with him would. In doing so, she dropped going one night. Going along with him? Yeah, she would go out with oh, him on his benders. Going with, I thought she just meant like getting fucking wasted. No, she with him, yeah. yeah. She would go with him to get trashed and just see if that helped. Um, in doing so one night, she dropped her now teenage daughter, Melvina, at a friend's. And her and her husband both entirely forgot about Florine, who was at school at the time. And when Florine came home to an empty home, she would eventually have to find herself heading to her father's home in Alabama, Charlie, while their mother had gone missing. And when Nanny eventually did return days later, she went straight to Charlie's, estimating that must have been where Florine would go, and snatched her girl back in an angry hurry. Her second attempt to reconnect with Frank failed miserably, and so Nanny settled back into trying to be the perfect wife while Frank fell further and further into the bottle. Her escapism with romance novels and the Lonely Hearts columns was now reignited, but she never wrote to anyone, only ever reading and daydreaming about what it could be like with these men in the newspapers. To Nanny, now with a second failing marriage, she began to blame herself. Something about her must turn these once gentlemen into horrifying monsters. This is what she told herself when Frank began to verbally berate her, telling her that the reasons things that the reason things are the way that they are is because of her. And this is what she told herself again when Frank's drunken physical alter- altercations became a home occurrence and he would beat her instead. Nanny endured and believed she deserved it. 
And so she would endure and last in this marriage for 16 years. Nanny's children grew up in broken homes and in their own way had an example of the very things they did not want. Melvina, for instance, in 1942 at the age of 18, married and moved out immediately. She kept communication with her mother light, but kept Nanny at an arm's length. Florine was similar, though Nanny paid even less attention to her and her dating life due to Florine being the less favored of the two girls that Nanny had. But Nanny watched from afar, wanting to ensure Melvina still had the life that she thought she deserved, but also never wanting to be the mother brags to her daughter and give her the space that she wished she had when she had, met, met, when she had married Charlie. And she watched as less than a year after they were married, Melvina gave birth to their first child. Florine moved in pretty immediately with her sister to help care for the baby, but in no small part due to wanting to move away from Nanny. But it wouldn't be long before Florine also got married and moved out on her own. And Nanny and Melvina would actually reconnect when this child was born. Nanny believed this is where she should stop, that one child would be perfect and Melvina would flourish as a mother. Nanny offered her services to aid in any way that she could instantly, and Melvina found herself having a real relationship with Nanny again, the first one since she was only a toddler. And only a year later, Melvina would be pregnant again. Internally, Nanny was fuming over this. Her drooling husband climbed back on top of her daughter and ruined her life just like hers had been ruined. But Nanny was still very much there for Melvina, and this pregnancy was harder than the other one all around. And when the time came to birth the child, Melvina had immediate difficulties. She screamed for her mother relentlessly to the doctors, and eventually, Nanny was, uh, wasn't, the, wasn't only in there with her, but was running the show and commanding nurses and so, and so on what to do. She took care and ensured her daughter was treated perfectly. It's like John Cuber. Yeah, that was a great movie. Labor lasted through the entire night with Nanny by her side and the hospital staff obeying her every command. And finally, after hours of labor, a healthy baby girl was born. Melvina was so weak from hours of delivery and the ether that she had been given to help with the pain that she couldn't even hold her daughter right away. And so Nanny took her. <laughs> Did Jesse just shake just, his head? No, just, just the, the ether? ether. Yeah, it's always, yeah. you know, ether. <laughs> Yeah, Give yeah. her ether and the uh, so, MP, the, the, the magic points. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and as Nanny took the baby, Florine ran out to inform the husband that he was the father to a healthy baby girl. But by the time that she had returned, the newborn baby had been declared dead. Melvina wouldn't talk about this moment for a while initially believing that what she thought she saw was a drug-induced hallucination. But coupled with what Florine saw when she returned, and when they would speak later, we now know what happened. Why is it always this, like this horrible thing happens, all these things where like maybe this person who's famous for murder might murder someone, and then it's like, oh, and then in the end, she just like murders some baby. Yeah. What's up with uh, that? Just, just a head, I, don't, I don't know, broken people. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know, it's, it's awful. Um, this next point, this next thing is a little rough to listen to. So just kind of a warning for those listeners out there. When Florine left, Nanny pulled a push pin from her hat and took the pin and sank it into the soft spot on the newborn baby's skull. And when Florine had entered the room, 
She said she saw Nanny playing with something in her hat. And Melvina went into a true mental break afterward. Yeah, that's, uh, that's what she ended up using. She literally sunk a pushpin into the baby's skull to kill it. Her marriage Fuck. was now... Melvina went into a true mental break and her marriage began to fall apart. And she continually left her older son, Robert, in her mother's care while she went out to indulge and assuage her sorrows. Nanny tried to speak with her, trying to stop Melvina from going down this road, ruining her life. But Melvina was far too gone at this point. One weekend, she came by with Robert and dropped him off for a weekend sleepover, only to immediately get into a screaming match with her mother before she left Robert there and went out on town anyway, leaving Nanny utterly enraged. And that rage meant Melvina needed to be hurt. Throughout that day, Nanny cooked Robert an almost endless supply of baked cookies and treats while he played happily and ignorantly in the backyard. She watched him while her rage guided her hands, mixing small amounts of rat poisoning into every dose of cookies. Motherfucker. Which in those days was simply arsenic. That's and not just rat poison. That's just like poison. Fucking That's poison. Straight yeah. poison. Yeah, exactly. And over the course of the day, Robert would eat and eat. It would be a full day before Melvina got back from her weekend excursion to discover the horrible news. Her little boy had died from what's known as cot death, a.k.a. natural causes. Nanny could have stopped at any point when she was poisoning this boy, but she didn't. And now a second child had died with Nanny in proximity. This only solidified Melvina's suspicions about her mother. And a few days later, the funeral was held. And the night after the funeral, Florine and Melvina were talking at the kitchen table, sharing their suspicions about their mother. And that's when Melvina came forward about her, what she thought was ether-induced hallucination of her mother plunging the pin into the top of her baby's head. But at that moment, Frank walked in, slightly drunk and looking entirely concerned. He looked at the girls and simply said, I reckon I'm next. With zero evidence that Nanny had done anything, the only thing that they could do was sit back, watch, and wait. And it would be a few years yet before their suspicions would be confirmed. Frank, for his part, continued his drinking and had earned himself a reputation as a coward in town for not volunteering for the now raging Second World War. Most men had jumped at the chance to go into the Second if World War. If I was War him, I would have been like, I'll take my chances there. I have a better chance of surviving <laughs> overseas. <laughs> I'm Honest to God, I am also surprised. Yeah, what? He did not take I that opportunity. I would have been like, this is it. Go. This is my chance to get. Nope. He stayed working his job, drinking. I think he probably just attached to the bottle too much. Most Leave men in his town. Midnight train. <laughs> <laughs> Most men had jumped at the chance to go into the Second World War to protect their nation after such a horrendous attack on their country, but Frank had no interest. This carried with him until the day the war was announced over. In that moment, nobody seemed to care much about Frank's cowardice anymore and took him out to enjoy a long night of drinking and celebration. The only thing they're happy about is that the war was over and Frank was welcomed back as a friend to them again. And when Nanny was inevitably and eventually called to come get him, she was actually pleasantly surprised. Frank was in an amazing mood. He was joking with her, flirting with her, and it reminded her of their early days as a wedded couple together. And on the drive home, she was quite happy, smiling and joking back. The positive atmosphere had seemed to do well for Frank. <laughs> Jesse's already shaking his head. 
<laughs> and when they got home, Frank became physical. He pinned her against the wall as he sloppily tried to make out with her. And while Nanny was having a nice time with him on the drive, she was far from wanting to be physically intimate with him. She said no and tried to fight him off, which only made him more violent. And that night, Nanny was unfortunately raped by her own husband. And the next morning, Nanny was set in what she wanted to do. The trouble was, Frank no longer ate at home. And what booze he had kept, he had, he kept very well hidden, not wanting Nanny to discover it or pour it out. And that morning, Nanny sat in the garden, waiting all while Frank sluggishly got up from a drunken haze, got his stuff together before going to work that morning, completely avoiding Nanny and a Nanny avoiding him. If, and I think, too, if Nanny and him got into an altercation, she might have tried to kill him more violently. She tended to her garden and kept herself occupied as she mentally poured over plan after plan. She knew the marriage was rotten to its core, and Frank was the reason. She simply needed to remove him in a way that drew no suspicion. And as she continued to work in her garden, serendipitously, her fingers came across something strange that didn't belong. Very deep in her garden sat Frank's moonshine. Nanny laughed to herself when she discovered it. This was it. The town already knew how much of a drunk Frank was, and this would work perfectly since he wouldn't eat anything Nanny cooked anymore. The next morning, Frank was discovered by Nanny in the front lawn. She quickly went to fetch the police, and it was discovered that Frank was absolutely pickled with corn whiskey. The smell of whiskey itself overpowered any decomposition smells that may have been arising. What the fuck? And, and near his hand, on the ground, was his moonshine bottle, drank down to the very last drop. At least, that was its appearance. But they hadn't known that was that after he had died, Nanny took the bottle and washed it thoroughly, as not to leave any trace of her arsenic poisoning anywhere. There was minor concern that there may have been something wrong with the moonshine, but not enough to perform an autopsy. It was likely they thought that his liver gave out, he either had a heart attack, or simply the cold got him when he passed out outside from being too drunk. It was Frank, after all. This was far from a surprising end for him as far as the town was concerned. This was more than enough for Melvina and Florine, however. They cut ties with their mother entirely and never spoke to her again. Nanny no longer had anyone to lean on and nobody she could be dependent on. These which girls now didn't go to the cops and say, we know she poisoned nope. our father. Nope. <sighs> how, you, how are you going to like act on like a feeling like that and you don't just like tell the police at least? Uh, if two children and a father later, I would have been like, oh, hell no. Like, even, <laughs> yeah. even just the two children, one child. I just technically four children at this point. I mean, this isn't, <laughs> but no, they literally went off and were just like not talking to her again to live their lives as peacefully as it could. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's what it was is they were just, they selfishly decided that they were just done living these, this tragedy after tragedy and just wanted to live their own lives. Regardless, just like previous times, Nanny now found herself the focus of her little world's attention. And also similar to before, there was yet another unexpected bonus for nanny early in their marriage before Fr drank frank uh, before frank drank himself into a stupor and their marriage was working well frank took out a hefty life insurance policy on himself and with zero evidence of foul play that money paid out and now for the very first time in her life 
Nanny no longer ever had to worry about monetary stress. She could do what she wanted, when she wanted, without restriction. This is exactly what it feels like to have a hit as a creator. Right. Yeah, when you finally get that one thing and you're like, wait, I'm I'm okay. I'm all right. I'm going to yeah. make it. And like you look back at what you've done to get here and you're like, I'm terrible. I'm a terrible human being. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's true though. Like, yeah, like this is one of those moments and you're going to see she kind of takes that and runs with it. Now, whether Nanny was simply smarter with money or she learned many lessons from her family and failed marriages, what Nanny did next was sound. With the windfall of money, she sound. first in, like in, in terms of monetary, like what to do with it. Did she build a machine to money. bring the people that she killed back to life? Is that what she no, did? No, no. She never became uh, a good person. <laughs> she just <laughs> she just was smart with her investment. She first invested right away. She purchased herself a little a little cottage and 10 acres of land on the outskirts of Jacksonville, Alabama, far enough outside of town. So she had her privacy, but close enough where she wasn't truly alone. Local sharecroppers immediately adopted the land and kept it worked, providing regular money to nanny for the investment she made, ensuring she always had money from this point onward. She generated herself passive income instantly. And now nanny was truly set free. No toxic marriage ruining her life, nor the need to parent young infants, nor the chains of debt and poverty. Nanny could do anything and go wherever she pleased, but she was also desperately alone. Her family had completely cut ties, and she purposefully kept herself a distance from town. So, old habits resurfaced, and Nanny dove once again into the Lonely Hearts columns. But this time, she'd switch it up a little bit. She was, by all accounts on the outside, more than a catch. And so, instead of writing endless letters to potential suitors, Nanny took out an ad herself in the Lonely Hearts column and let her potential suitors come to her. And the next two years would be relatively romance-free. What we know about these next two years is that Nanny traveled a lot all over the country by rail to sightsee and meet an unknown amount of potential suitors. We have physical evidence that she stayed in Ohio and in New York, but beyond that, not much else is known. In New York, there was even a potential victim, though the evidence is entirely hearsay, and around this time in New York, murders were happening so often that the police force was entirely overwhelmed. All we know from these rumored sources is that Nanny met and supposedly set up a hurried marriage to a man named Hendrickson, who would very, very shortly thereafter pass away. But we have no cause of death, nor do we even have a marriage license on record showing that she was married to this Hendrickson at all. So it's left up to just kind of random, you know, he said, he said she said, whether this happened whatsoever. I fall on the side of I don't know. I don't didn't seem like Nanny's M.O., though she might have, but she always seemed to put more time into the relationships even going forward than just whatever brief few months that she had here. Um, and again, like they said, it, there's so much crime happening in this time in New York that could have been anything. And once the Nanny story came out, maybe somebody was like, oh, that's what must have happened to Hendrickson or something along those lines. We just don't know. Regardless, 
After two years of gallivanting, Nanny was once again swept up by a man who seemed to write all the right things in a tone that always held Nanny's attention, just like her favorite romance novels. A man by the name of Arlie Lanning. Arlie was from Lexington, North Carolina, and after the end of the war had made a nice home for himself, had a good job with great pay, and didn't seem to be in a rush to throw a wedding ring on her finger. Through his correspondence with Nanny, he spoke about having never been able to meet the right girl in his life, which for Nanny meant he had no intention of settling down and enjoyed mingling with the ladies. But now age was catching up with him and maybe he was looking to settle down. Nanny 100% has this guy's MO. Like, uh, I don't yeah. want to like spoil anything, but this guy was like, hey, I've never met the right girl. That dude is a player. <laughs> Unfortunately, this didn't dissuade Nanny. In fact, it seemed to merely fall into one of her many fantasies. This one was taking was about taking this once dirty boy of the streets and making him right. A proper gentleman on I mean, the that's right a, path. Yeah, that's like most look. I know. Uh, that's most that's most fantasies. Like oh, <laughs> right? this bad boy. I'm gonna make him a good boy. I guess that's trophy one oh one. Yeah. And that's Nanny. That's mm-hmm. what she saw. She, in her mind, she was going to be the one to set him down the right path and make this bad boy good. <laughs> and, <laughs> no, no. Yeah, it's, it, do, well, early guess. Do you think it works? I'm going to let you know. Uh, no, I don't think it works. But more importantly, my favorite, my favorite trope is the girl tries to make bad boy good slash <laughs> guy tries to make good girl bad. It's always, it's always that every time. And I just want to say, love it. Huge fan. Huge yeah. fan. <laughs> uh, for Nanny, she was going to set him on the right path. And before long, Nanny was on a train to meet him properly in person for a weekend. She rented a hotel room and would give him a bit of time of, of her time to see if things were truly compatible. Could he sweep her off her feet? And when Nanny arrived now at 42 years old, Arlie was knocked over by just how beautiful she was and began trying to win her heart even more. And after being swept off her feet for the weekend, uh, the weekend after a, tr- a week after her trip, she was already packing her bags to move in with Arlie and get married to him. After you a weekend? She spent a weekend with him, went home, a week went by, and she moved. She went from four months to for a marriage to two months for a marriage to one week for a marriage. This She's is like deranged. This is This is starting to get like... Again, it doesn't seem real. It seems like a, like a, like a, you know, like a movie. Like I, 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 it's so crazy to me. Yeah. And, and it just keeps getting fucking crazier as we watch nanny in action here. And and it's, and again, nanny just never learns. You'll see outwardly. The marriage seemed to be effing perfect. She lived in a comfortable house with someone who genuinely seemed to love and admire the woman that he married. And while Arlie went to work, the seeds of doubt had already begun to spring forth in Nanny's mind, unsurprisingly unable to forget Arlie's past as a man who supposedly enjoyed spending too much time with any girl who'd give him attention. And she began to build her network of contacts at her new home in town. And it didn't take long before the town she now called home fell in love with Nanny and her sweet demeanor and loving personality. So of course, her newfound friends filled her in on Arlie's every movements throughout town throughout the day as work and time went by. 
Nanny quickly learned that the time Arlie was spent working, quote unquote, was about half of the time being spent in town. The rest was drinking and socializing. But in the beginning, he did try to keep it under control as he did truly love Nanny. He knew drinking would lead to more bad decisions, so he attempted to keep drinking in check. But eventually, he began to reason his way to drinking more and more while spending time with those he shouldn't by simply lying to Nanny on the days that he came home late from dinner. What what she didn't know couldn't hurt her, but Nanny seemed to always know. And less than a month into into Arlie doing his best and being married, he got sloppy and fell asleep at the home of one of the girls he was sleeping with instead of going home immediately afterward as he always had been. But Nanny, with her web of contacts, was already well aware of where Arlie had gone, and when he returned home, he was greeted with not Nanny or home-cooked food or poison, but with an empty house and a short note left where he could find it, reading simply, going on a trip, be back soon. So Nanny simply left. It would be a week before she would return, and the train she arrived on came in from the north, not the west, where her farm was. While she did go home to tend to her farming matters, she clearly had mostly went out to go to New York. And when she arrived home, she was decked out in new clothing, hats, furs, and so on from her New York excursion. Arlie immediately begged for forgiveness and swore off alcohol entirely in an attempt to prove to Nanny how much he truly loved her and was sorry for letting the liquid demons get to him. As my line, you like that? I appreciate it. I like that. the liquid, liquid demons, demons yeah. dude. Liquid, yeah, yeah, thank liquid you. demons sounds like a great name for a bar. I think Jesse's drinking liquid demons right now. What does he got? <laughs> uh, that's liquid death, but oh, very, yeah, yeah it's very okay. similar. Very close, very close. I can only see a little bit of the can, but. <laughs> and to Arlie's credit, for a small time, he was successful. But the battle against addiction with zero, with a zero support system is hell. And Arlie would fall time and time again. And each time, Nanny would leave town before he arrived home the next morning, leaving nothing more than a little note. Her excursions were of similar ilk to Arlie's as time went on, using the Lonely Hearts column to meet men and be swept off her feet for a weekend or longer before the fantasy would be forced to meet reality and back home she would go. This would be their relationship pattern for over five years. So she would just go out and live these little fantasies, sleeping with other people and just being kind of like losing herself in the in the romance of it all before going back to Arlie. Eventually, things would come to a head in the winter of 1951 into January of 1952, where the flu. This might sound familiar to you guys, where the flu was ravaging across the country and Arlie was forced to quarantine at home. People were dying rapidly and work was not something Arlie could go to. Now, here's the thing. I want to take this moment and discuss whether we think Nanny actually tried to make this marriage work for five years or she simply was biding her time waiting for a moment to rid herself of her husband. Because we'll we'll go. Let me go forward a little bit and then let's revisit that topic. But I want that thought in your mind when we go forward from this point. It's at this point, after about five years, Nanny cracks briefly and by cracks what i mean is her outward demeanor as a perfect housewife began to fall away she stopped taking care of herself very well the house became dirty and unkept and she stopped cooking 
mainly just going by by the bare minimum. Nanny had truly let her darker moods for the first time in her life, nearing 50 years old, affect her outward motivation. But that didn't last Mm. long, maybe a few weeks before suddenly she changed again, back to being the perfect housewife, taking care of the house, cooking for Arlie every night, and keeping things perfectly clean while he was stuck at home all through the winter due to the flu and not being able to work. Now, it's it's that moment where he's at home that she cracks and he sees that that reality for a little while before she's able to patch it back up. And I think it's simply him being around that caused it obviously to crack. But Nanny continued to pretend to be this perfect woman until one day while Arlie ate one of her many baked goods for him, he passed. He had been sick apparently for some time. And by the time the doctor uh, Nanny had called on an emergency finally arrived after six prior home visits before getting to her house, Arlie was announced dead on the spot of heart failure, what the doctors at the time were using as shorthand for death from the flu. So she played. So the reason I want to I want to kind of play like I want to revisit that topic is because there wasn't really a clean moment for Nanny during those five years where she could get away with killing him and blaming, at least in my mind, blaming it on something that made sense. Suddenly, the flu thing hits, everybody's getting sick, everybody's dying, and Nanny spends maybe, again, two months, this is, this is the maybe two or three months before she finally kills him off under the guise of it being the flu. So I don't know if Nanny was actually trying to make it work for those five years or she simply had decided she was going to wait for the right time and that right time didn't show up until 1952. Hmm. I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting thought because she really she wasted no time taking him out and was easily able to cover it up with the flu excuse. Honestly, it seems to me like it's more of a like. Like it's a type of brain to me, like I think yeah. I think she just has like, you know, I don't think she's I mean, maybe she's a psychopath. I don't know, but it, it just seems like that sociopathic sort of like making one decision versus making like another extreme decision. To me, something that seems extreme to me yeah. maybe is not so extreme. Maybe it's just, uh, you know, a, a moment of opportunity that you take where, you know, you're going, you're willing to do an extreme act of violence or something like that, you know, like at the drop of a hat. Yeah. To you, because, well, for her, she's never been punished for it. She's only ever benefited from it at this point. But the reason I'm also, we'll talk as we go, maybe we'll revisit this again, but there's, Nanny, the reason I compare her to Little Littlefinger is you'll see later too. She puts in an insane amount of thought before she does these things, which is why I don't think it's a it's a momentary like she decides it within a few days. I really think she really puts some thought through. But let's let's keep going here and we'll, we can talk about it I, more. I, yeah. Okay, I, I no, no, go ahead. No, I just there's a lot about Nanny that uh, I mean the. Uh, I guess her like it's hard for us to understand her motivations on things because it seems like things in her life, people, human, living, breathing, sentient creatures are are not more than just impediments to what she views as her perfect life. Life. And she doesn't care if she kills them, because that's the simplest way to remove an obstacle is to just delete it. Yeah. And, and her life has shown her that like the world is like this. There is just purely fucked up shit going on. 
Yeah, and so I think there's no way I I, I know for a fact that the three of us uh, are empathetic beings, and there's no way that any of us, unless I'm about to find out some crazy shit about Mathis, like I wanted to see those aliens, and the Satan told me to kill that family. Like I don't know, I don't know what the hell you're doing over there, but I mean, stuck I, a pin I, through the soft part of a gray alien skull. <laughs> <laughs> They're all soft up there, yeah. baby. I just it's I, I don't think we will ever truly understand. Yeah. her perspective so the idea of saying like did she wait did she not i don't know the reasons why she'd wait versus why not because in her mind she's probably like well you know here's all the reasons why i'm gonna do yeah. it now versus later and only because it's more convenient for me to murder this person now like that kind of stuff it's crazy yeah and the well, well as we will again we'll revisit this thing as we continue because there's more bizarre things with nanny that she does that in my opinion, hurt her chances of like not getting caught as opposed to R. But she holds these weird, very specific, specific values that seem to not really coincide with being a fucking serial killer. So well, I'll explain that as we keep going. Regardless, at this point, no, any, no suspicion is laid upon Nanny for his death. Nanny was a widow with the family of Arlie and her community. Nanny was a widow with the family of Arlie and her community at her beck and call outpouring their love to the grieving, wonderful wife that was Nanny. But Nanny was quietly taking care of other things behind the scenes, well before Arlie was even buried, inquiring about the house that she now wished to sell and the insurance money that she would have paid out to her from his death. All while the Landing family took Nanny under their wing, allowing her to live with their mother-in-law while everything had been sorted after Arlie's death. But it's here we see Nanny hit an unexpected bump, and in my opinion, evidence that she thoroughly does think things through. What she hadn't expected was Arlie's will. It hadn't been updated since prior to their marriage, and Arlie's sister had actually moved closer to Arlie in the past when she had fallen into dire straits, and in the will, he left his house to her should anything happen, not to Nanny. So now, Nanny found herself stuck. She wasn't going to get the house in her name, nor the fortune that she would have come, that would have come with selling it, and now she was once again living with someone in a small home, far from her idyllic life, that was not authoritarian, but reminded her of darker days. Sure, Nanny could pack her bags and disappear overnight, but that would cast instant suspicion on her and sour people's opinions on Nanny. She needed an out, that not only gave her what she wanted, but also allowed her an easy out from her current living situation with the support of the people around her. And after some digging, Nanny discovered an out. Of course, Nanny would only would of course that uh, I'll try that again. Of course, Nanny would allow Arlie's sister to have the home. How could she not? It was Arlie's wishes after all, and Arlie's sister seemed utterly resistant to Nanny's charms in her attempts to persuade her otherwise. And shortly after Nanny shipped all her things back to her cottage from that home to give it back to Arlie's sister, a terrible accident came to pass at Arlie's house. A freak fire incident burned the entire thing to the ground. Luckily, nobody was hurt. But due to a weird quirk in the insurance policy on the house, the insurance money wouldn't pay out to Arlie's sister, but to Nanny instead. Nanny would be forced to live with the mother-in-law for another month before the investigation into the arson would be deemed accidental and full money would be paid out to Nanny. 
But suspicion within the Lanning family had begun to swirl, and those rumors made their way out to the public. Again, Nanny at this point could have left, having gotten everything that she wanted without dealing with the suspicions, but Nanny abhorred not having control of people's opinions and their situation. And instead of leaving, she began working on turning people's opinions back around on her. She immediately began working around the house, asking for the mother-in-law to let her help, cook, clean, and generally take care of the area and her. Arlie's mother resisted slightly, but quickly had to admit that Nanny was a much better cook than her and much better at tending to the household chores. She was swept up in Nanny's pleasantries, and as her opinion spun around, so too did the opinion of the family and of the town. The mother-in-law's own words were enough to sway people back on a nanny's side. And in January, shortly after Arlie's death, Mrs. Lanning began to take ill. And days, after, uh, and days of sickness eventually became weeks while Mrs. Lanning became slowly bedridden. And for months, she would be bedridden, with Nanny there to care for her and take care of the entire household while Mrs. Lanning bravely fought off her sickness and she was doing well with Nanny by her side. And after more months of fighting, sadly, Mrs. Lanning eventually passed away. The town came together, and even Arlie's sister found herself close to Nanny like a sister once again, as they mourned the passing of someone she thought they both truly loved. And just like that, all the suspicions swirling around Nanny vanished She would stick around Lexington long enough to see Mrs. Lanning buried before saying her goodbyes to everyone and heading home to Alabama before being called back to southern Alabama later on. So she was able to sway Arlie's sister by being there and caring for the mother for months before uh, the mother passed in the whole town now loved her and she left with everybody's well wishes instead of having all those suspicions. And that's where I'm just like, she didn't have to do that. She could have walked away from all of that without risking what poisoning another person simply to build the reputation as a caring person so that she could leave with people's well wishes. But she did. And it worked. Arlie's sister didn't give a shit about the house burning down anymore. The the, The town just loved her again. It fucking worked. But that's it's insane. I mean, I think that's the pathology here is that it's not about the murder for her. It's about no. the love that people have for her. Yes. And she'll do whatever she ca- it takes to get that love. And so she sees like, oh, if I enter this person's life and I take care of them and I am like their bet and I do this, this and this, the people in the town are going to love me. And that person dies. Who are they going to show the rest yep. of their love to me? I get all of it now. That's and like she. It's, you know, it's sick, but that's what <laughs> she's is. doing. It's nuts. It's like a way to play like a, like a video game. It's not a way to live your life. It's like a way to play through like a RPG. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. it's such a weird way of like looking at your options. That's but, why I call it like little finger style where like set up where murder benefits him the most. Not saying she's like as smart as him, obviously, but it's the closest comparison I can come up with. But it's also very similar to the same mentality of someone who fakes illnesses because mm-hmm. then they get the like, oh, you're so uh, let me let me yep. take care of you. Let me do this. It's the, it's the exact same reward. Like, oh, if I just lie 
they'll take care of me and they'll love me. And yeah. so this is, this is just an extreme version of that, which is like, yeah, of course it, I'm here to help and yep. kill you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Mm-hmm. And again, it's at this moment where I think this, the, the, the falling apart of Nanny's life gets sped up even more. So she goes back home to her town, her home in Alabama, but she's there for about a week before she's called to Southern Alabama. Her family needed her. There's a North Southern specific- Alabama. Yeah, it gets yes. more south than Alabama. I know. Oh my right? God. <laughs> One of her sisters, Dovey, had gotten ill and become bedridden and wished for Nanny to be there. And when she arrived, Dovey, to Nanny's description, looked like a skeleton with skin held over it. And Nanny quickly began to take charge, caring for her sister and attempting to nurse her back to life, cooking for her, cleaning her home by her bedside every hour that she could manage. Uh, Much like in the hospital with her daughter, those around her listened and obeyed to Nanny's commands. But only after a week of trying to nurse Dovey back to health with zero improvement, Nanny made a decision. It would be better for her not to linger in this world in such pain. More importantly, Nanny was already very ready to move on, tired of her promise that she made to her sister to get her better. And only after two weeks after Nanny arrived, Dovey would pass away with the assistance of Nanny and her cooking. God damn it. Yep. Uh, again, uh, the cover, she's already sick. It was way easier for her to take care of that. And since she was able to be there and be the loving nurse, everybody came together for Nanny. Talented Mr. Ripley. While, yeah. 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 All while Nanny was home, she actually hadn't seen her parents, much too focused on taking care of Dovey. And when she didn't see her parents at the funeral, she cornered what few people were there, specifically her brothers, to find out why. What she learned broke Nanny further and seemed to send Nanny into her final spiral. <coughs> My apologies. Her mother, Lou, was still alive, but James, the one she'd always truly hated, whom she'd always dreamed of killing herself, had died, leaving Lou to the, the farm in so much debt that, she, that Lou was going to lose the farm within a month. Nanny, being very generous and gracious, stuck around to help Lou with the house's foreclosure before packing up her mother's things and moving moving Lou into the cottage that she now lived in. Lou had never grown resentful of her daughter, and in Nanny's eyes, Lou had finally begun to flourish a bit out of the thumb of James. But it quickly became apparent that Lou had been much too beaten down for her to flourish beyond her smaller freedoms. She still tried to control and command Nanny to no avail, and had become so accustomed to living under someone else's thumb that life beyond it left her confused and drifting. And so she did only what she knew, and Lou began to become Nanny's new dictator. And while she held no true power over Nanny, more monetarily or nor being because, you know, she's not a kid anymore, the power of public opinion was enough for Nanny to be controlled by her mother. I mean, what would people think if Lou's own daughter treated her poorly? And Nanny once again found herself in, a fam- in familiar territory and began looking for a way out. Lou at this point was old, and when she finally fell ill, it came to no surprise to anybody that knew her. She had lived an incredibly hard life on a farm, doing manual labor for little to no profit, under the heel of an unruly man. And when Lou finally passed away, the sympathies of Blue Mountain poured in, for Nanny took nothing but care of her mother, caring for her like her own child. Nanny certainly seemed to have a hard life full of loss, but some people seem to just be that unlucky. 
Blue Mountain stood by Nanny as they buried her now deceased mother, doing everything they could to show they would be there to take care of her, just as Nanny had for Lou, unknowing that Nanny was the cause of her mother's death. So she, she killed her mother in the process. I, I keep thinking about the pathology of this person, and I wonder <laughs> if I'm overthinking it, and it's literally just like, crimes of opportunity. Well, I mean, like, I keep thinking, like, what she's doing is it seems like because I know people are like this. I know sometimes I'm like this where you agree to do a thing out of the kindness of your heart or you follow your heart or you're like, you know, I want to find love or this, this, this. And you're in it. And very much like the husband she had who cheated on her. That guy was like, oh, I love this. I love her. I want to get married to her. And then like a month later, he's cheating again. And I feel Mm -hmm. like she's the same way where she's like, I want to take care of this person. or I want to be a part of this person's life. And I want to do the good things. And then she's like, it's been a week and this is tough. (laughs) They'd be better off dead. And then she kills them. And she's like, all right, well, that's done. I guess I'll go find something else to do with my life. And I I wonder if it's just really simple. Like, she's like, I want to help you. God, this is all. It's like if I said I want to help you move, and then halfway through the move, I was like, I can't believe I agreed to move. What if I just kill him and move? On? Like, oh, he fell on the stairs and died. I, I don't have to help him move anymore. Like, I don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it's it's like there's a there's a there's a couple like connections in her brain that shouldn't be connected right now that have her jump to killing somebody as the problem it's solver. Almost, it's almost like a story that like you can almost get behind of like somebody who's like beaten down by society and is being kind of like punk rock about like getting back at the powers that keep her down in society but she keeps killing the wrong people like you want her to kill her like oppressors every time and that's where you think like i mean i'm i'm hearing this as a story right like right, I, I obviously realize this happened in history and that it's a real thing but just the way that her life is set up like everything's so cliched and you think she's going to be like this. It's going to be revenge, 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 but it's not, she kills it's babies. not revenge. It's like, she thinks it, it, it feels like she thinks that her lot in life is like the law of the jungle from like the most basic point, like kill the weak one advance. Like, you know, like it's yeah. annoyances. It's things that are in her way for happiness or things that like, Oh, this baby. Oh, I got to deal with this. And the literal only happiness she ever gets is one after the person dies and she gets surrounded or that first week of a marriage. Yeah. Like she, she is looking for happiness. And when she doesn't find it, when there's something in the way of that happiness that annoys her, even if it's a minor nuisance, she's like, well, it's better. Just get rid of it. Yep. She doesn't want to put the work in. Just rather move in and move on. Crazy. Nuts. And while we find Nanny here once again in a familiar loop, her world was already beginning to crash down and Nanny was internally spiraling. Her loneliness was never cured. The vengeance she sought on her family never sated. And now her age began bearing down on her. No longer could she swim in the pool of young men. Those interested in Nanny now were men her age, looking to settle down after a lifetime of selfish living. She was getting desperate and when you're desperate, you begin to make mistakes. The next relationship would be a short-lived one between her and a very well-off older gentleman by the name of Richard. Much like the many others, Richard won Nanny over with fancy letters and additionally, many gifts. Many, many gifts. Richard seemingly was well-off from a life of hard work. Anything Nanny wanted, she got. And in combination with the fancy romance-style letters that he would send, it wouldn't be long before Nanny fell in love with the fantasy once more. 
But within a month of wedding and moving in with her new husband of named Richard, Nanny quickly learned that Richard had many, much younger girlfriends about town, buying them the exact same gifts that he had been wooing her over with in turn. And it would only be three months before dear Richard passed away of illness while Nanny collected how, what little money she could. How is this not like 50 FBI agents just like chasing her everywhere she goes? It just it just it just she keeps slipping through the fucking cracks. And Nanny collected what little money she could from his passing after taking care of his debts, because apparently while he spent lavishly, he did not take care of what savings he had and just blew all of his money while he was alive. So she just did not have any money left over after he passed. So she collected what little money she could, paid off his debts and began moving on entirely with another new life. But Nanny, Nanny had one more marriage in her to come before everything came to an end. Marriage to God. (laughs) I just, who are marriage? Oh my God, I can't. This This is is the one. We're going to talk about this one. You're close, Alex. No. She marries a preacher by the name of Samuel, who lived his life as a goodly, godly man. And it would be the last one that Nanny would marry. How did they even meet? Uh, Whatever. All right, whatever. Yeah. Uh, Once again, so... Little facts that I left out. The rich person, because Nanny was really rich, she didn't go to the Lonely Hearts column for him. She joined the Diamond Club. That's how she met Richard. The Diamond Club was rich person dating. Yeah. Now, but then afterwards, she didn't want to go back into the Diamond Club because she was worried that the, his death would rouse suspicion. So she went back to the Lonely Hearts columns of newspapers. Um, That's where she met Samuel. Uh, this final marriage is interesting as there didn't seem to be any of that fantasy built into Samuel. He was kind and loving, maybe sure. But the interesting thing about this one is not his similarities to the other husbands she married, but his similarities to her father, James Hazel. Being a preacher, Samuel was extremely strict. He kept his finances entirely off limits to nanny, and expected her to take care of the house in a very specific way while he worked every day. There was no lust or carnal desire. Sex was scheduled, always. Nanny, by all accounts, was treated like his ward, and Nanny grew, uh, grew to despise it very quickly. Now, I say it's interesting to note the similarities because this feels like a marriage bore out of the need for revenge that she never got on her father, because she wanted to kill James, her stepfather. She wanted to kill James. And, and uh, Samuel is much closer to James than any like romantic knight in shining armor. And while she did seem to try to make it work early on, doing exactly what she had, uh, she had done to Alfie initially and leaving the house for a month unexpectedly after they might argue, when she returned, he promised to loosen up a little giving her access to their money and trying to loosen the reins on his control throughout the house. But that only lasted for a short period of time before things once again fell under his command and back to the way they were. But what truly put her over the edge was his throwing away of all of Nanny's romance novels without a word. And so Nanny did the only thing she knew to do that worked. She cooked. Unfortunately for Nanny, Sam wasn't a big eater of sweets 
meaning hiding the poison in the food would be way harder. She simply couldn't rely on the sugar to hide the taste. So instead, she cooked him a huge breakfast, adding tiny bits of arsenic to his coffee throughout the entire meal. But unlike before, she wasn't really sure of the measurements needed because when she could do it in sweets, she just put tons of fucking arsenic in to kill them as quickly as possible because the sugar just hit it. And once Samuel inevitably fell ill, a doctor was called. And instead of dying right away, Samuel was rushed to the hospital where he would spend 23 days recovering while Nanny dallied in her house alone, waiting, hopefully, for Samuel to pass so she could play the role she had learned so well of grieving widow. Besides, it was well known Samuel had a persistent stomach sickness that he'd been fighting well before Nanny had ever come into the scene. So she, she already had her excuse built in. She knew that he had stomach issues and people around town and his doctors knew. Are you about to tell me that this whole house of cards comes crashing down because a priest doesn't like baked goods? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> See, he had the Lord on his side. Unfortunately for Samuel, he still died. Never and mind. <laughs> but unfortunately for Nanny, the doctor who had been treating him wasn't so convinced something uh, th- that something else was happening. A doctor by the name of Dr. Schwelbein had been treating Samuel with antibiotics the entire time. And this stomach issue was unusually resistant to the treatment when it shouldn't have been. And when Samuel's body arrived in the morgue, Dr. Schwelbein wanted to perform an autopsy, which meant he needed Nanny's permission. Mm. And so he set about to outmaneuver Nanny. Amongst a gathering of mourning townsfolk, Schwelbein cornered Nanny and very openly and loudly spoke to her about his concern that something maybe wasn't right with Samuel and that it was oddly hard to treat uh, his sickness. And for the safety of the town and for his own science, he'd like to perform an autopsy to learn what happened in case maybe some sort of sickness was going around. The townsfolk around all had heard this conversation and a few actually took interest. And with the pressure of the public in plain view, Nanny did the only thing she could do to save face. She agreed to the autopsy right there. And it was this autopsy and and the discovery of a clear large amount of arsenic in Samuel's remains that Nanny, that Nanny, that finally cornered Nanny and got somebody finally was like, you know, an awful lot of people have died who you've taken care (laughs) of. Sort of. So the doctor didn't look at the history, but he was just like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. And simply because the man suffered for 23 days, he had plenty of time to try and treat it. and Nothing worked. Nanny did not get would not be held long. Nearly a day with cops berating her with questions. She would only answer with a smile and giggling before denying everything. This is what she where gets her nickname comes. from when they were yeah, like, did where- you do this? She was like, hee hee hee. Yes, literally. She'd be like, she'd be like, hee hee, I don't know what you're talking about. Hee hee. And that's it. That would be the only response she got. But later that, that is day, creepy, man. S- Special Agent Ray Page arrived, an investigator, do, who had done all, a day's worth of phone calls and research, trying to trace Nanny's recent past and trying to construct a timeline of events to question her about this random this death. And when he entered the room, the interrogation was quick. And I'm going to have you boys read the interrogation as I wrote it here. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm going to send it through. I am, I'm going to send it. I'm going to try and send it through Zoom. I think it'll fit. Nope. All right. I'm going to send it through Twitter. You got it. Who is who? 
You who wants to be nanny and who wants to be page? Alex Director is a great page. giggle. So okay, all right, all right. So your page then. Uh, go ahead, uh, Jesse. Your page and your nanny. Do you believe in ghosts, nanny? A few years doing my job, you start to believe in them. They don't haunt places you see. They haunt people. I meet a lot of haunted people doing my job. People that have done wrong and know that they have done wrong. I keep telling you, boys, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) How many husbands have you buried, nanny? How many of their ghosts are in this room with us right now? It's still you, Jesse. Continue. <laughs> we can do this the hard way with me running around the country gathering up the evidence of all the folks you killed. I'm about to do that, and I'll be pushing for the death penalty. But if you admit to what you've done, then things will go a lot easier for you. All right, all right, all right. I put rat poison in his coffee. He was a miser of a man. He wouldn't let me watch my shows on the television. <laughs> he wouldn't let me run the fan even on the hottest nights. I mean, what woman could live in circumstances like that? <laughs> he sounds very cruel, Nanny. There you have it. Now my conscience is clear. Can I have my magazine back now? <laughs> if you tell us about your other husbands, I'll be happy to give it, happy to give it back to you. I promise not tell us about Samuel. And that's how quick it took Nanny to crack. That conversation cracked her instantly. I don't think it's even like, I think she literally doesn't view them as people. And so for her, she's like, of course, yeah, no, I killed him. Can I have my magazine back? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She very much kind of accepted and moved on. Over the next day, Paige was about to was able to get the confessions of for four of her dead husbands, though she did outright deny killing her family and her relatives. Regardless, it would result in Nanny spending the rest of her life in prison, though it would have been longer than, like, say, about 10 or so years had she not simply died of leukemia in 1965 while stuck in state penitentiary. But during that time, she had many fans and friends. And she continued writing romantic letters to countless suitors who wrote to her outside the prison cell walls. So in a way, Nanny still got to live a full life, even if it wasn't at all what she dreamt of. And that is the story of serial killer giggling granny Nanny Dawson. I hope we get a remix of that from somebody out there. I hope it's from a amateur bluegrass group that loves the Chimney podcast. I hope we have one of those. Shout out be- to the mandolin players and steel guitars. Uh, you know, Ooh, old it, steel guitar. Yeah. Anybody who Ooh, does one of those, the old you know, steel those guitar. steel drum guitars. I forget what they're called. You know steel what drum about. guitars. It's like, it's like, a, it's like, a, it's called a resonator. It's called a resonator, a resonator. Shout outs to the soggy bottom boys who are going to come through. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, thank you guys so much for joining us on this little uh, dance, this little excursion into another true crime episode. Gentlemen, how are you feeling at the end of it? That little scene we just did reminded me of uh, going to see Captain EO at Disneyland, uh, which if you don't know what Captain EO is, it's a uh, Michael Jackson vehicle that was made by Coppola and George Lucas. That's like a 3D thing. It's like a it's like a 3D 
you know, you go and you put on three. It's like a 4D experience, really, is what it is. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, but it stars Michael Jackson. It's from the 80s. <laughs> and the person who introduces it, I kid you not, was like, all right, everybody. Hee hee. Hoo hoo. Welcome to... <laughs> Captain EO, uh, everybody, you know, silence your cell phones, get ready for a show. It's going to be awesome. Hee hee, hoo hoo. <laughs> and what she was trying to do was the Michael Jackson, like, hee hee. But she was, she was just saying like, hee hee, hoo hoo. <laughs> so that's where I'm at. That's, where I'm, that's where I'm at right now. I, I, I'm disassociating from the just like absolutely horrific violence and derangement of this woman and, and, uh, I'm, you know, I'm had, I'm regressing back to my memories of Disneyland. <laughs> well, I'm, I uh, hope those are fun memories either way. Uh, Patreon.com slash Chiluminati pod. Yeah. What, speaking of, we're going to go do a mini sode for that Patreon uh, next week. I don't know if we're going to have a lot. We'll do like, I might have like a mini sode compilation, but it's the holidays next week and everybody. So if we're not around in person, we'll be back the week after there'll still be, like I said, something up on uh, for you guys to listen to, but uh, we might just take next weekend off. Thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go take care of Patreon. And if you're not on Patreon or want to be or want to bump up your pledge, Chill Tracks will be dropping in the next day or two for everybody to go get. That's at the $20 tier. That gets you the poster as well as the, the Chill Tracks and everything below it. Uh, that's it for us. Merry Crims. Uh, happy New Year. Merry Crims, to the happy, happy, happy New Year if we don't see you. Yeah, all that good stuff. And uh, we'll see you next time. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye. Anyway. Me and my wife were sitting outside indulging on our porch one night, enjoying ourselves. I needed to go to the bathroom, so I stepped back inside, and after a few moments, I hear my wife go, Holy shit, get out here! So I quickly dash back outside, and she's looking up at the sky in awe. I look up too, and there's a perfect line of dozen lights traveling across the sky. 